You're still training, by the way? Nah, I gave up that shit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I have a, um, like I mentioned, with my dogs having troubles, I stayed home as close as I can. I have a little gym in my, in my, it's in my barn, actually. Um, so now it gets fun because it's starting to get hot. Uh-huh. And um, if I get out there, sometimes, you know, have a podcast or whatever, something I have to do, absolutely have to do in the morning, then, you know, it's 100 degrees, 105 in the barn. Oh, man, that here. Uh, you get used to it. I actually kind of like it. Like, it just, you start, you're sweating, but I'm sweating before I even get in there. It's just like a short walk. And, it's, um, yeah. It's better than training in a air-conditioned gym these days, right? I can't stand training in, like, a really cold gym like that. It's, like, it's annoying. I think. Yeah. Sometimes they have the fans running at arm burst. I'm like, dude, we need to shut this. Oh, well, they usually open that big, the big door there though. Right. Right. Yeah. That's where you're training those arm bursts. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'll, um, hit up cast and then I'll train it in one. So it's like back and forth sometimes. Uh, arm is great, man. That's last time I was out there was for a seminar at arm bro, Jim. A seminar you ran? Yeah, with Paul Carter and Alan Aragon. Nice. Yeah, yeah, that was 2018, maybe I think. Sheesh. So, yeah. It's crazy to think that that was so long ago now, huh? I know it doesn't feel that way. Um, I want. I had another one set up. This is one of the things. Are we, we recording? This is part of the podcast. We're just doing chit chat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I had a whole tour set up before the pandemic i was on tour in my with my truck camper and um that was close to my next stop i got i think three or four seminars in and then the pandemic hit and then everything closed down all the gyms were closed so i couldn't my venues were gone and like no venues were open everyone was just you know running and hiding but that was one of the one of the places i was going to go back to in 2020 so that's on my on my to-do list for the future Come through. We'd love to have you. It's a it's a it's a great gym, man. I love that place. I love the vibe in there too. Yeah, it's very. It reminds me of uh, the gym in San Diego. Hmm. Oh, is that the outside, partially outside gym? Yeah, they have an outdoor gym and then they have a downstairs gym. It's massive. A lot of great kit. Is that the out? That's um, they changed the name. It used to be a powerhouse, I think. Or it used to be a World Gym. World Gym. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that gym well. I've trained there 12, 15 times, but not since they changed the name. Yeah, you got you to gotta go visit. Hmm. That's, that was part of the deal. Yeah, I was going to come by. I had a seminar set up in, in Venice, California, and I was going to go through there. I love that place. The parking is for shit, yes. from what I remember. The parking's awful. Um, so, but, yeah, that's a great gym, too. Absolutely. Awesome. So we'll go ahead and get the ball rolling now. And um, what is happening, team? It's your host, Coach Hawk, with Anabolic Radio and HawkFit Coaching and Legion Athletics. And I'm joined today by Dr. Scott Stevenson, who is a competitive bodybuilder. He has his PhD in applied exercise physiology. He's the author of this monster (laughs) of a book referred to as be your body be your own bodybuilding coach i highly recommend it and uh, has over almost 3000 references and dr scott provides 
incredible insights for things related to bodybuilding, maximizing muscle building, and um, we're going to dive into the science today of different positions and training those positions with regards to muscle length. And um, I think it would be an appropriate segue to kind of delve into range of motion and give the audience the um, introduction on the importance of range of motion. <laughs> so for those of you who are unfamiliar, whenever you perform an exercise, there's typically going to be different positions in a range of motion. So we could typically qualify it in four different positions. So for example, if I was doing something like a bicep curl, the upwards phase of the range of motion is going to be qualified as the concentric range of motion. When I'm holding the top position, contracted position at the top, that's going to be referred to as isometric in the shortened position. And during the downwards phase, that's typically going to be referred as the eccentric position. And all the way down there, uh, all the way down to the bottom is going to be referred to as isometric in the lengthened position. Now, Dr. Scott, would you happen to add anything to range of motion or the different positions of a muscle in a range of motion? There's a lots we can say there. Um, that's true, of course, every exercise, right? Um, I think the thing we're going to delve into, the thing we're interested in, is what does the range of motion for a given exercise mean in terms of what's happening physiologically within the fibers of the muscles that you're trying to train? So, like biceps is an obvious one. You can do a, um, you can do the, the stand in front of the mirror with the overhead cable, biceps curl, um, and your both heads, your biceps going to be shortened because you're in that position. And at the other end, and basically you'd have a similar range of motion at the elbow there. So you're going from fully extended to flex as far as as far as your massive biceps will allow, right? Maybe 90 degrees for someone like you, right? The 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 size of the the python um and then you, you could on the other end you might have someone lying on an incline incline bench and in this case they've got shoulder extension at play and now they're going to do a biceps curl they have the same range of motion but the the length of the fibers and the length of the sarcomeres in the biceps um, are different in this case um, the other thing too of course related to range of motion which is important is the loading curve that's presented to the muscle relative to the individual's voluntary strength curve or or the tension capability of the muscle through that range of motion so when you change your positioning even though the range of motion in a given joint might be different depending on any exercise compare a knee extension to a squat or what have you obviously you're getting into more complexities there or compare um for instance we talked before about my my gym out in my um at my barn so i have like it's basically this, the oldest school old school knee extension you can have it's a plate loaded it's basically it starts off if you're sitting on it you've got a bench that's parallel to the floor your knees are at 90 degrees and it's nothing at the bottom right um because basically the there's you don't have any moment arm there um and then when you get to the top um 
it's it's maximal effort. So the the loading curve basically goes from almost zilch. I could put load that thing up with every plate I have, and bang out one inch range of motion from at ninety degrees knee flexion, and I'd just be bouncing the thing back and forth. But I if I got even a, to forty five degrees of knee flexion, so halfway up, because that because that machine is really poorly engineered to match the human strength curve for knee extension then we got a situation where the loading is really, really poor. And get the full in knee extension, it's it's absolutely awful. What I've actually done with that is I've taken the bench and I put it at an angle. So the bench is now um, sort of its incline or decline with me sitting on it. So when I start, and I don't know, if, is everyone going to be able to see this? Can the viewers see me? Yeah, yeah. Some people will just be listening as well. People will see you. Okay, good. So people can see. So normally the starting position here with my this is considers my knee is here so you can do this all day long the weights the weights here but when i get to there then we've got a ton of weight so what i've done is taken the entire bench and set it up at an angle so now i have a downward vector um and i'm so i'm leaning back way back when i'm doing my knee extension but that at least gives me some load at the beginning of the knee extension it's still a terrible knee extension it still doesn't match the human strength curve but it's better than what it was because mm. it was just diabolical for knee pain the way it was set up before. And now I at least have some load at the beginning. Um, if I could, without feeling like I'm going to fall off the bench, I would jack the thing up probably even higher um, so that I ideally had maximum load at maybe 45 or 60 degrees of knee flexion. That would match human strength curve a little bit closer for most people. Interesting. Um, sounds it, like uh, yeah. Sounds like a great challenge for uh, training the rec fem in, at a longer length. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's where we're going. Um, yeah, if I could lean, I could lean back. I might be able to get a little hip extension and and have some more rec femoris um, interaction there as well. Uh, I'm I'm not going to do that. I probably would fall on my ass. I'm not even sure with the way my machine's constructed if the plates wouldn't want want to some sliding off the the post or the whole thing wouldn't flip back onto me because I'm basically, you know, in a, a bat position hanging upside down. But yes. So, um, so that's, th awesome. that's the thing that's important for range of motion is full range of motion is generally, we can talk about the important because of various reasons we can delve into, but the loading curve is important over the exercise as well as the range of motion that's actually experienced by the muscle relative to what what position it's in at the beginning and end of the of the uh, exercise itself which which is very dramatically depending on what exercise you're doing the mm. one i'm talking about mm, great points great points so with regards to range of motion um i believe most people it would probably be in their best interest to include something like tempo within their programming just account for the different positions in a range of motion and how long they're spending uh, in each four phases of a rep. So for example, um, depending on if more time is allocated towards the isometric in the short position or isometric in the lengthened position or more eccentric loading um, that could potentially elicit more metabolic or mechanical effects on the tissue and it's also great for just standardizing um 
your reps and making each rep nearly identical. My buddy Brian Porstein likes to say, uh, own each rep. And I think mm, that's uh, like that. incredibly important for uh, maximizing the quality of work done within a given set. So as far as a practical application goes before we get into the physiology of different positions and what the current body of literature is investigating and in demonstrating, would you have any uh, insights as to tempo and its importance or application in training? Yeah, um, this is actually sort of a kind of a little bit of a hobby horse topic for me to some degree. <laughs> we can get way off off track here, but rep execution is absolutely vital if you're going to track progressive overload. And I still think, um, although the the evidence is is isn't extraordinarily vast in the scientific world, that to some degree progressive overload is the name of the game. If you maintain your execution, your tempo mind-muscle connection is what I'm going to get to here in just a second. Um, and you go, you get stronger over time. There's just no way, shape, or form that if you get extraordinarily strong, you're not going to, assuming you're eating appropriately, you're not like um, a weight limit restricted athlete who's trying not to get heavier as he gets, he or she gets stronger, you're going to gain muscle mass. Um, the interesting thing is that, um, if we consider perhaps the importance of eccentrics um, and the relative strength that we have during concentric and eccentric loading, um, we do have a little bit of evidence to this to this um, point. We are stronger on eccentrics here on concentrics. So standard, um, it's funny in 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 Germany there's a, a Marcus Ruhl. You know who Marcus Ruhl is. He has this saying that he said, you train heavy and false, basically. And false is sloppy, right? Old school sloppy. And it's kind of like how people would talk about Branch Warren and Johnny Jackson training. When they're getting the gym, they're just going after it. Obviously, those guys had various things working to their, their advantage. But the way they're training, um, to some degree, if they had a good mind-muscle connection and they're able to activate the targeted muscle during whatever exercise they're doing, and I think actually Ronnie was someone who was really, really good at this. You can make the make the argument that training a little bit sloppy where you use some body English to assist lifting the load, assuming that body English isn't excessive and you still got a very, very precise mind-muscle connection targeting the activation of the muscle you're trying to train. So let's say it's Ronnie's back when he's doing those T-bar rows in the corner, right? Um, he's... You know, throwing. He's using back extension. His legs are. In, he's got leg drive going on the whole thing. But assuming he's also got good activation on that eccentric, he can he can exert more force because that's the very nature, according to the force velocity curve, skeletal muscle, such that now he can lower a heavier load than he would have been able to lift with strict perfect form. That matches better what the human strength curve is, um, and you see. When people do not all studies, but to some degree, and there's a I think there's a reason for that. An ideal, a more ideal way of training can be with an isokinetic device, um, for instance, where you can put forth maximal effort on the concentric and the eccentric, or flywheel training. I don't know if you looked in the flywheel, yeah, flywheel training is badass. Basically, you load yourself up and you have a tremendous eccentric. You don't have issues of friction, um, for instance, like you do on many machines. 
So you could overload that eccentric because the muscle's capable of producing more force during that and, and take advantage of that possibility. The devil's in the dose, of course. You do too much of that, um, and then, then you can end up doing more than you can recover from. And in that case, that's not to your advantage. But as far as someone, for instance, let's say who is beyond beginner intermediate level, and they want to getting back now to strict form tracking progress, the reason for doing that. So you know what you're doing, right? So you're owning every rep in that way. Something that people can do, I think, to usher in new progress um, is, for instance, track their strict reps. And you're going to have a better mind-muscle connection in most cases with a slower velocity, right? Um, in the studies, for instance, in the, the main paradigm they use is people are doing a bench press. And they say, use your triceps or use your pecs. And individuals can do that um, with lighter weights or with slower velocities of contraction. But when you try to go heavier or move the weight more quickly, you have to use more motor units. You have to use more muscle to do so. It's a higher level effort. And then the ability to selectively activate the pecs or the triceps, um, and they use EMG just to, to determine this, goes away. You simply can't do it as well. So you try to, you try to do uh, like a, a three-rep bench press. If it's truly your three-rep max on the bench press, you're going to have to use pretty much everything available. You can't say, I'm going to make this a three-rep max chest for my chest, right? It doesn't work that way. But if you're down at 60 70% of a one-rep max, then people can do a much better job of selectively inactivating um, muscles or activating the target muscles. So back to strict rep execution versus sloppy where someone may – and this is, a, like I said, a more advanced technique for, for someone. I mean, I've been training for 40 years. Um, Ronnie been training for who knows how long. People have been out there for training for, um, and I have a, a funny anecdote from a, a study. It's kind of an anecdote. It's something I picked out of the data from a particular study. But people who do feel like they have a good mind-muscle connection, um, they can execute reps. This is a strategy to intensify a set, let's say. Execute reps with a really nice, clean tempo like that. And then once you get to a failure point where there's nothing left, assuming it's a safe exercise to do that in, add in cheat reps, basically. Bodybuilders have been doing this for forever. Don't start off doing cheat reps necessarily, although some people do that and it can be very effective. But the interesting thing is, is that if someone could, and we're, we'll just ignore the, the injury risk, someone could train just in a system like a flywheel or an isokinetic or basically mimic that by using a lot of body English doing crappy reps and not doing that simply out of ego-based reasons where they're only they're just trying to move as much weight as possible um bodybuilders the way i think with bodybuilders have very in terms of of intent of internal focus it's completely the opposite of powerlifters external focus move as much weight use as much muscle as they can possibly um, bring into the, the movement, right? And make it legal. Whereas bodybuilders are, if I'm trying to train my chest, I want to inactivate everything else. I want to just have, have just enough synergist accessory muscle activation as possible to keep my joints intact. So I don't dislocate a shoulder or something or a hip, right? And only activate what I'm trying to turn on. So someone could, could then train in a way that you would with flywheels or isokinetic devices, 
by doing, let's say, controlled cheat reps where they have sort of an honest, a little bit of an honesty. Um, and a lot of good bodybuilders will see this. They train until they stop, start losing connection with the muscle. I think like Jay Cutler is probably an example of someone who does this. I think John Meadows sometimes would do this to this as well. You'd see some of his sets and they were literally to failure, but, and there, you may not even see a mechanical form failure take place, but internally there was a failure taking place because he knew he wasn't, it wasn't able to continue the set and still keep the focus on the muscle he's trying to target. Mm. So tempo is, is an interesting thing. Um, and the overarching principle there that's important, and I'm, I'm going back and even step, taking an even further wider view of the forest here from the trees, is I think of the stimulus overall in a hermetic sense, so in a kind of an adaptive homeostasis. I've used the term hormesis and adaptive homeostasis when I've sort of, I've got to include two because it's it may be more appropriate depending on its semantics. But um, So it's an inverted U, right? You keep on adding the more and more you get a dose response and some some point relative to all the factors that figure into your recovery abilities, you've got an optimal place where you are, right? Um, and then if you keep on trying to do more, let's say you do 10 sets with perfect form, you just take those, to, those are your 10 working sets to failure and that's how you train. If you just, and, th and, and that's ideal, if you tried to do 12, 14 more, that wouldn't, you, it wasn't, wouldn't be recoverable for you. That, that would not be a deal. Your, your progress forward would be diminished because 10 was your sweet spot. Mm. This doesn't mean that you could do 10 sets like that and then just start doing 10 sets and then adding cheat reps on the end of, end of each of those sets. Because now you've just, you push yourself too far on that, on that dose response curve. Now you can't recover from that. Now that's excessive for you. So if what's missing in terms of making progress for some, someone is the potency of each set, so to speak. So we can think of, if we use the kind of the effective reps paradigm, we can think of, you know, you've got a 12 rep max and your, your sets are taken to nine reps generally, so you're leaving two or three in the tank. Um, then at some point in time in your training progress, most people are going to find just adding more sets of that potency isn't going to be sufficient. They're going to have to decrease their reps in reserve start performing more effective reps, maybe even do what a lot of advanced guys do is they, like Nick Walker has mentioned this actually as someone who's, who's more day-to-day. Dorian Yates saw the same thing years ago. The, the, the better he got, the more he trained, the lower his volume became over time because he was able to train harder and harder. So another way, if someone's already going to zero reps in reserve or to a true failure repetition, <clears throat> another way of beyond failure training could be and with some exercise or with a partner too, this is what force reps, these intensification techniques are about to add in. Um, but in the context of tempo, it would be that cheat rep. So literally you're, you're allowing yourself to move the weight up um, with a little body English and, and your rep tempo might even change a little bit because you're, so you're basically doing kind of a self-assisted force negative, so to speak, but you can't do 10 of those. Otherwise, you're just flopping around like a fish out of water. That doesn't, you know, you're just, that's just asinine. But those can be added. Um, and what I would do if I ever, if I ever had that in a programs in the past, I would, I would always note that um, in my logbook. So that 10 rep scenario, 10 set scenario for someone might be, okay, now instead of doing, um, you know, four sets of a primary exercise and two, th two exercises for three sets, you might do three, two, and two. 
you know, and maybe on that second one, um, that last set of these exercises, you might do um, cheat reps like that, controlled cheat reps, um, two or three, and just make note of that. So, those are some interesting points. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people will, um, unfortunately, and I think a lot of people that just tend to think in black and white <laughs> terms a lot, but I know a lot say. of people will completely write off uh, momentum and its potential application in training, you know, um, yeah. and then it potentially has even more of an application when we get into the conversation of things such as like partials. Um, so right now, what the current body of literature is sort of suggesting with regards to range of motion in training is there tends to be a bit more favor towards training muscles at longer lengths and how it's important for maximizing uh, muscle building. Um, now I know you happen to go out of your way and take yeah. a couple days to just review what the literature is concluding. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I dug in a little bit on that. Um, it is, so we've got, we've got a couple phenomena that are involved here, a couple of things that probably require a little bit of kind of background information to understand. Um, muscle is enormously plastic. Um, it adapts in all sorts of ways, enzymatically, um, obviously, Outside of that, the nervous system can adapt, and morphologically, in terms of its architecture, muscles can adapt. We see, can sort of, it's, this doesn't capture everything. There are circular muscles as well, for instance, but we, in terms of most skeletal muscles, we're talking about muscles that are either um, what are called fusiform, so like the heads of the biceps, or muscles that are pinnated, so unipennate or multipennate muscles. So like, if anyone has a well-defined rectus femoris, um, who's, you know, maybe when you've been in con, yeah, right. It's badass. It looks fucking awesome. You can see really close. So there's a central tendon or central aponeurosis there and the fibers come in at an angle at an angle. It looks like a feather, right? Um, so the fascicles are oriented in that way. So those muscles, the fusiform muscles have, will tend to have longer fascicles and longer fiber links. Those are the tend to be the longer muscles in general. And those are designed to some degree for speed. So if you've got a muscle fiber that's made up of numerous sarcomeres, so I think of, um, uh, you can think of, imagine a can, a cylindrical can of uncooked spaghetti, right? And um, that is your, that's your muscle fiber. And you look inside that muscle fiber, or look inside that can, you pull out one of those pieces of spaghetti, and you see little demarcations along the spaghetti. Each of those demarcations are sarcomeres, right? Little, little Z-lines, Zwischenlinie in German, Z-line stands for Zwischen, between. Um, and imagine if you had a short piece of spaghetti, and each of those little segments were to shorten by 50%, then your short piece of spaghetti that was broken off, you know, might shorten by two centimeters, right? Let's say it goes halfway, it goes from four to two. But if you have a long piece of spaghetti, you might go from six to three. So the absolute change in length is greater in longer fibers. So if you have um, a spaghetti can with all those myofibrils in there, and it's a really long one, then when it changes its length by 50%, let's say, it's changed its absolute length by a great bit. So 
relative to the other factors that determine the speed or the velocity of contraction of the fibers, those fusiform muscle fibers or fusiform muscles with lots of longer muscle fibers that are in parallel like that with one another, those are designed for speed and then potentially longer ranges of motion, right? Um, then we have these pinnated muscles, um, and these are more like, they look more like a, um, a bird's wing or bird feather, right? I think of this sort of as um, tug of war. So imagine you've got, you know, two, two teams on a tug of war and that central tendon, let's, let's talk, talk about multi-pennant muscles, so it looks like the rectus femoris. You got the, the fibers coming at angles along that central tendon. It's kind of like having, think of just one side of that tug of war and you got the rope there. You've got your, all your big behemoths packed in on either side of that rope, as many as you can so they can tug. So there's one on the left side, one on the right side, and they're, they're stacked up that way. Um, now, the, you lose something there in that they're kind of pulling at an angle, right, the way we set this up. You've got as many big, you know, world's strongest man competitors as possible, but they're all world's strongest man competitors. There's a little bit of an angle loss because, they're, because those fibers come in at an angle, but because they come in at an angle, um, you can pack more fibers on there, and those are more more set up for shorter ranges of motion and higher force production. So having that, that pinnated um, architecture allows you to pack more fibers on that tendon, and those muscles are generally set up for force, or sorry, for more force production, not necessarily long ranges of motion. But they can still adapt, right? So back now to our, our topic at hand, um, muscles, when they adapt to a tensile overload, like resistance exercise or plyometrics um, as well, uh, are going to adapt potentially differentially based on what they're designed for in the first place. And jumping ahead, we sort of see in the literature um, that, that the muscles of the lower body, rectus femoris oftentimes, or vastus lateralis, which are pinnated, seem to do better when they're trained in this stretch position. And we don't see uniformly always this impact, for instance, on, on training the stretch position in terms of at least changes in architecture in the biceps, um, in terms of fiber length or fascicle length, because they're already set up to be long. Whereas if we look at a pinnated muscle in the lower body, like the vastus lateralis or the rectus femoris, and we train those in a lengthened position. Oh, I see a kitty cat. <laughs> Sorry, I'm always distracted by pets. Um, then, then we've got a situation where there's some possibility for adaptation. And what happens when muscles are, are they undergo a good bit of eccentrics or they undergo a plyometric type of stimulus? You see this even acutely. You'll end up with a lengthened fiber and an angle of um, pination that's less. So the muscle tends to adapt so that it can take on a little bit of a longer, longer formation and be more readily able to produce force in those longer lengthened positions. It makes sense. Go back to the old specific adaptations to impose demands. It's already there. So the pinnated muscle has this capacity to lengthen the, the and this happens relatively rapidly actually. You can see it's like there's one setting resistance exercise, resistance training like 10 days, happens in a couple weeks in plyometric training. You get a lengthening of the fascicles and they lay down, lay down a little bit and become more like a pinnated muscle would be 
because they're adjusting themselves. But what that means then, they're adjusting themselves for being able to produce force in that lengthened position, right? But what that means then, when you come back and you measure them in a standardized position to see if things have gotten um, any bigger, is that now you shorten it to a standardized length, and now you've actually added mass and volume. You've added sarcomeres in series to lengthen those fascicles. And now you've, in cross-sectional or in muscle thickness, you've got a bigger muscle. Just from that sarcomerogenesis effect, right? From lengthening those fascicles. But of course, on top of that, if you're training and producing tension, you're also thickening the fibers. Fibers are getting bigger. Then that's going to make for more hypertrophy. So in those pinnated muscles, especially training them at length, you have this change in, in um, fascicle length, which is adding muscle volume by adding sarcomeres and a change in, in fiber cross-sectional area by adding myofibrils more than likely. So you got a doubling effect there. And that, that initial effect, that sort of changing in the architecture to adapt to training at longer lengths is something that um, happens pretty quickly, reverses pretty quickly, uh, and it can't go on forever and ever. Unfortunately, you know, you can't just make yourself from a five foot two to a six foot two bodybuilder and lengthen everything and get more muscle that way, right? And you can't, you know, you can't start training your your you know your quads, you know, beyond whatever maybe a hundred hundred forty degrees of of knee flexion. Event, you know, eventually you're just you're going to destroy your joints. So the muscle can only adapt in terms of that that fast those fascicle at length and pination angle related adaptations to some degree. Um, so that's that's one aspect of the important thing there. And I'll cut stop stop here and maybe we can discuss that. See some questions bringing in your head. Um, is that you can activate the muscle in those lengthened positions. So we've got we've got the principle of um, uh, it's called neuromechanical matching. Um, Chris Beardsley's talked about this. Um, uh, Guillermo Escalante has a nice article on the NSCA site where he refers to this as well. So, but clear as mud so far? Pretty clear. And okay. um, I think uh, just as far as a practical application goes, a lot of people will think that, oh, you know, the literature is demonstrating training at long, uh, longer muscle lengths is more beneficial for hypertrophy. And then they'll completely write off exercises that are typically harder in the shortened position, which if your goal is to train a muscle throughout its full contractile range, you should include exercises that train the lengthened position. You should include exercises that train the shortened position. And then once you get into those sort of nuances, that also requires you to understand the resistance profile of a movement and how to make it uh, damn near close to the strength profile of a given tissue. So, right. yeah, that's that's the beauty of picking the right exercise, right? But also having a good mind muscle connection. Um, one of my like the training the way I have been now, mainly out in my in my barn with I've got an Iron Master. Um, I like to come up with new exercises. So like I adjusted that knee extension, you know, I, I added a, a, a cross pulley system to the thing so I can do more exercises. I vary things around based on exactly what you said. Um, and I've also got, I think was probably a decent mind muscle connection at work. So even with a crappy exercise, you've probably done this, you're on, you're traveling, you go, I'm like, oh my God, 
this knee extension machine is awful, but I'm going to do my best, or this machine just doesn't work. This chest press machine is just way too tough near full extension, right? I'm just, I'm make, it's becoming all triceps just to get even close to the, the end. You can figure out how to do that and make it work um, for you because you've got a decent mind-muscle connection. So that's the important thing, I think, that, um, that is really understudied is, and this, and this is principle, and this hasn't been studied very well, but it, it, but it makes sense. It, it definitely takes place, um, is that our nervous system is paired to the biomechanics of our, of our muscles. This is this idea of neuromechanical matching. And so muscles are going to be activated throughout the course of an exercise or the course of a movement relative to how they've been set up biomechanically to be advantageous for that movement, right? So, and this is, it's actually, it's actually pretty cool. A lot of this data comes from respiratory muscles. Um, for instance, the scalenes up in your neck, um, those are involved with raising the rib cage and breathing, taking big breaths, um, inhalation. When I was doing a lot of Chinese medicine, I ended up working on um, a lot of people with bad necks. And going on the scalings was always someone who was under stress. They're kind of doing one of these things. And the worst scalings were in smokers because they're constantly doing that, right? So they've actually done EMG measurements of people just during normal breathing. And what you can do, one of the coolest sort of studies, a little anecdotes that were study evidence demonstrating this idea is if you look at EMG activity during normal breathing or breathing under various circumstances, you see a certain amount of activity. And then when they hang someone upside down, so now the gravitational pull has reduced the load to lift the, the rib cage during inspiration, the scaling activity goes down appropriately. Makes sense, right? So your, your system is going to adjust itself for given, especially pre-programmed, like locomotor movements or movements as basic as squatting, right, um, to a large degree to accommodate what's necessary proprioceptively from those muscles and what they're capable of producing biomechanically. So that's that neuromechanical matching. Um, we did a, a study. This is kind of a kind of a it was a sort of a gruesome um, experiment we did when I was in grad school. My my mentor Gary Dudley was awesome. Love that guy. I miss him so much. And he said, hey, we, gotta, we need to, I want to do this study. He was reading some research at the time on fish. He was looking into this sort of idea of like, how, how does the nervous system control muscle? And they had done studies on fish where they paralyzed a portion of the swimming musculature of the fish. And they had them swimming at various speeds against the stream. And even with some of the musculature knocked out, the swimming mechanics of the fish remain the same. They adjust themselves, Right. Very cool. They figured out how to do it. Um, their nervous system just just recognized that something was off and still optimized the swimming motion for forward movement economically. So he said, I wonder if this happens, if it happens in the quads. It would make sense that it, it did. So we went up to, we took, we got in a van with this um, basically home-brewed isometric knee extension machine um, so we could make some isometric measurements. And do some other things. And we wanted to see if this happened with the quad in humans. So we drove to Michigan from uh, Georgia, oh, like all night long. This sounds like a college road trip, right? And um, we got up there so we could use the MRI machines in the middle of the night. And what we did is we stimulated the vastus lateralis with e-stim. 
until it was dramatically fatigued. And then, at, and you, you would expect this to happen, but it was pretty cool that it, it happened like right off the bat. And then we watched EMG um, measurements and also did some MRI to see what happened doing a knee extension task in terms of the other quad muscles. And all the evidence that we gathered suggested that the nervous system, even though that's a completely abnormal situation, that just the vastest lateralis would be completely destroyed. Like literally, we just, we just whacked it with E-STEM until it was damaged. It couldn't produce any, and it was, and it was metabolically fatigued as well, right? And the nervous system just took over. It figured out during knee extension what to use and to activate the other muscles of the quad to take up the slack for the previously fatigued vastus lateralis. So the nervous system can figure these things out. So it's going to activate muscles relative to their biomechanical advantage, their moment arm, their leverage, however you want to express it, over the course of range of motion. And some exercises are just, you can, I, I like to think that after someone's trained enough that you can to some degree go by feel as to what, what and where a muscle is being targeted. You can tell this because you can feel it in the muscle. You can, you can sense the pump afterwards. You can sense the soreness the next day. We know too, of course, from those mind-muscle connection studies that people can turn on and off muscles during exercise when asked to do, to, do so. You can do, do touch training. You touch someone or you, you can tell people to turn off parts of their traps instead of use their delts when doing lateral side extensions. There's, there's several studies that have demonstrated that you can have a mind-muscle connection. So the idea, and I, I think I've wandered from our direct topic, but the idea is you pick a, an exercise that lends itself to a loading curve that activates the target muscle in the way you want it to, and then you couple that with a good mind-muscle connection. And sometimes you have a crappy exercise, and you have to take up the slack with a good mind-muscle connection. But ideally, you have a great exercise. Who was it? Oh, I think it was Andrew Barry. It's a couple weeks ago. He was talking about, um, I don't know if you know Andrew. He does uh, drugs and stuff with um, Ken Hill. He's on there. He's, he, one of the, he's one of the main guys on John Muscles, John, John Meadows' site, Mountain Dog Diet. Um, and he, there is, uh, and Andrew's the IFBB pro. He's been training for 25 years at least. I don't want to make him sound older than he is, but he's been at it for a while. He knows his way around a gym. And there is a one particular chest press, I think it was a chest press exercise machine that he found. It's a Chinese knockoff machine that is just has a perfect loading, perfect loading curve for blasting his chest. And he just found this thing, you know. It's in Tampa at one of the gyms he goes to. I'm not sure where, I can't remember the details, but it's just like holy shit. This machine is just absolutely ideal. Probably specifically for him. He's a tall guy, has longer limbs. It matches him really, really well. So it fits well with his ingrained neuromechanical matching based on his biomechanics um, and probably what's been motor programmed into him, even unconsciously, when he's not actively, voluntarily focusing on having a great mind-muscle connection. So I think that's where, the, um, where, where things can be pretty important is, let's say you start training, and back to maybe the, the person who kind of takes this, this idea of training in a lengthened position too far, Let's say you say, I'm going to do everything just in a lengthened position. But if you're doing exercises where you can't, you can't rightfully activate your, um, the muscles you're trying to target, it's no good. So let's say you start doing just, just lat pulldowns from a lengthened position. And you really can't target your lats that way. They're very difficult to activate. There's one study at least showing 
that lat activation on like a pull-up becomes much greater at the end of the range of motion. That's where you feel it as well, right? So it's just doing your lat, you know, going as wide as you can or going just doing like upper part of range of motion isn't going to do much for your lats if you can't activate them during that, in that stretch position. And we know at stream end that just doing stretching um, doesn't tend to do much in terms of changing fascicle length or anglopination. doesn't tend to just passive stretching. But plyometric training, where you've got tension produced in those stretch position, absolutely does. So not that I'm saying anyone should do plyometric lat training. <laughs> Don't go to the gym and start bouncing around, you know, um, doing the, what are the CrossFit pull-ups, the, the uh, muscle-ups? Um, although complex pull-ups. Yeah, there you go. But but there's but there's something to say for that. I think there's a, there's an injury risk that you know may not warrant the payoff for many people. Um, but when you think about the fact that we're overall another overarching principle is that we're trying to hack the muscle, we're trying to hack hack our our genome into ev evoking this adaptive response of muscle growth, right? And so we pick resistance exercise with these very structured, controlled, concentric, eccentric. So we can focus on the muscle we're trying to train. But if there's if there's something about hypertrophy, and some some people argue that that it's just sort of a side effect of of resistance training, that it's not really a primary, it's not a, a truly an important adaptation. Now for us, of course, it is, but in terms of performance enhancement, it's not that big of a deal. Um, if we if we t put that to the side for for just a second, I think there's there, there there's got to be some kind of naturally found mechanical stress which would lead to that type of muscle hypertrophy adaptive response and it's more than likely going to be something that would happen when we're running playing or maybe fighting or struggling and those are going to tend to be more ballistic types of motions those are also more likely to get injured um, especially when you get older so um but you know, we can't argue. We do see we do see people that have gotten, you know, Dorian Yates was very controlled in his motions, right? Got gigantic. Branch Warren was just the opposite. He got gigantic. Um, I wouldn't say that, you know, Branch Warren had just just the greatest genetics ever such that he could his genetics just outweighed crappy training, you know, that that like that training wouldn't have worked for him at all if he, if he hadn't been using PEDs or what have you. Um, that would be an interesting, interesting question is to see what happens. Um, but there is, there's actually one study with IsoConnect showing that faster eccentrics produced a more robust response, um, in terms of changes in fascicle length and penation angle. So, but you can't, you can't do that with a free weight. You mm. can do a fast eccentric with a, and you push as hard as you can and the machine just pushes you down on an IsoConnect device. But when you try to drop a weight, extra fast then you got no load because you're free, it's free falling that's where bands uh, bands in particular could come in <laughs> um, accommodating resistance yeah right so interesting great point um so based on the resistance profile of a movement and um potentially the velocity of that exercise would that particularly influence proximal or distal growth of a tissue? 
Um, yes. Mostly what you see, as you know, is that are the distal, the distal ends tend to grow. That's where you tend to see that. And, um, and that, that the end at which you see the movement at the joint, right? And there's some evidence suggesting there's some force inhomogeneities in the muscle that may, may be predisposing it to greater force there as well. Um, that may be causing that, but um, the thing, the difficulty is, in terms of very, I think this is what you're getting at, in terms of trying to vary your velocity of motion, is that in doing so, at least with most of the implements we have available in the gym, you're losing tension too at the same time, mm-hmm. unless you're going to incorporate a bounce, right? And I just, for safety reasons, wouldn't suggest most people do that. Um, now, which, what you can do is you can start a set, like you, and this is, like, this is a, a, a beautiful way to do hamstring training, for instance. You, know, you have someone doing like a prone hamstring curl, and you start a set with, with force negatives, right? Or you end the set with force negatives, where someone helps you, you have a training partner, right? So let's say you go to failure, and then you, you bring the weight up, and then your training partner you know, pulls you down, right? So they add load. And you can do that at a, at a, a slow speed, um, or you can even do it at a, at a faster speed. Um, so they can, you, can, you can, with, assist, with assistance from, from a training partner, you can do faster things like that. Again, you've got, you know, you got to know what you're doing. You've got to have a training partner who's highly in tune with you, um, not someone who's literally just trying to destroy you. But yeah, that's the thing. I don't. It, it gives us some evidence as to it, actually what that made me think of. I was when I was thinking through this, I was I was thinking about um, fitness competitors because they're kind of unique. They have a you know really unique um, challenge in that they have to balance their routines, which are highly ballistic, right? Um, so they're doing basically gymnastics, and gymnasts are known for having. Pretty much, maybe sprinters and gymnasts, of course, weightlifters, powerlifters, but amongst, other than bodybuilders, gymnasts have pretty much the most muscular physiques out there, right? Um, so it make, makes me wonder, there are a lot of women who've done this, um, not, even, not even just regular competitors, not fitness competitors, physique competitors, who do like a lot of ballistic type of training, plyometric type of training, um, and that would be a way to take advantage if there is some advantage to be had from doing fast loaded eccentrics that come with with plyometrics and ballistic training. And then, of course, you'd add in on top of that the slower, typical, traditional resistance exercise. But, yeah, it's a difficult thing to do. Um, Tom Platt's uh, lying hamstring curls. Yeah. <laughs> or the knee extensions, the kill me, the kill me knee extensions. Oh, man. Yeah. Kill me. And he's uh, he's laying back in that too, similar yeah. to like the leg extension that you had uh, you yeah. created. Well, I uh, had the whole machine, a whole whole bench kick back to change the the starting force on the knee extension. Mm. So um, I can't lean back too much on there because I'll just fall back. Then I'm doing like an ab an ab curl <laughs> like at 45 degrees the entire time. I could do that, but um, it's too funny. Yeah, so I there think was, this is a great point for accommodating resistance and i think uh mm-hmm. sort of um trying to make 
the resistance profile of an exercise more ideal for our strength profile. So a common one that I'm sure a lot of people see is reverse banding a hack squat, right? Mm -hmm. And that um, simply allows us to, well, and then John Meadows used to use this as well. And he would always say, oh, it reduces the strain on my knees. So you could have a potential situation for improving orthopedic outcomes. And then uh, you're able to load the movement a bit more. So in the bottom of a hack squat, that's going to be qualified as our weakest position or mechanical disadvantage. So it allows us to make the mid to short position a bit harder. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and sort of making a resistance profile for an exercise a bit more quote unquote ideal. Yeah, well, you're limited to some degree, you know, bands are going to let you sort of adjust one end of the range of motion. You know, you can't, you can't always get exactly what you want, but it's going to vary depending on pretty much on the individual where their strength is, even on a hack squat where your foot positioning is, how you're, how you're doing the hack squat. You can do a, you can do a, kind of a, a ham press with a hack squat and put your feet high and wide, externally rotate, and make that more of a hamstring and glute exercise and don't get the same amount of depth. People who are um, uh, really short sometimes have to do those sorts of things, depending on if they don't fit in the, in the exercise. But the idea there is to match the loading curve, the resistance profile, to the strength curve, as we've already sort of talked about. Um, before I forget, I, I don't want... I, when I blowing off that question, but I wanted to throw something in. There was a line of equipment um, Life Fitness made. It was a um, magnetically braked line of equipment. They had it at uh, the gym I used to train at back in Tucson, and you could train with the same load. And there were just it was just numbers. You didn't know how many pounds you're using. It really didn't matter. They had all the basic machines, twelve or fifteen machines. You could train with the same load, concentric or eccentric. And what it would do actually is I think it gave you like three, three reps, two or three reps to get to the load you chose. So you just type in between like two and 20. Um, 20 was beyond what almost anyone's ever going to use. Uh, or you could train with 20% overload on the eccentric. Um, so you could do knee extensions with an overloaded eccentric. So you would push up the first couple of reps were just getting up to that whatever load you set. And then you'd push up and it would push down harder on you. That was a whole line of machines that I used whenever I used them all the time. I used them on pretty much every time I had that exercise, I would include that one in there. And then they got rid of them because no one, no one had to use them and no one liked to use them. And it was a, a little bit herky jerky sometimes every once in a while. If you start to get tired, it would just stop. If you couldn't push hard enough, um, if you're, you're starting to do a grinder rep, it would just cut out thinking, you know, you don't want, it doesn't want to get you hurt. Um, so that would be an ideal, that would be an ideal resistance curve or resistance profile um, is to be able to add more on the eccentric than on the concentric. And that's what bands do to some degree, um, depending on your tempo. So let's say you're someone who likes to dive bomb your hack squats using that, right? Um, and, and now, uh, now let's say you just band them regularly, not a reverse band. So the band's at the bottom pulling down. Um, if you were to dive on that hack squat, you would maybe be free falling for the first half of the range of motion, right? If you really go fast, just, just for the sake of conceptually grasping this idea. But when you put a band on there, now you've got tension. The band is, I mean, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to maintain that tension continuously unless you go just 
unless you literally just drop, even then it's going to pull the weight down faster. So the band, the band maintains tension um, more appropriately through that range of motion, just regardless of your speed. So you can't get, there's no lightening of the load when you're changing directions from the top coming back down again. Um, chains on their other hand, don't do that. So chains are, you know, they're just hanging there. So they're, they're subject to gravity in the same way. So that's why a lot of people will tend to find when they add bands in, they tend to get a little bit, a little bit more sore initially off the bat. Um, but the thing, the thing with bands is they do, there's kind of a, a catch 22 here that I just want to toss out. Um, in terms of training that mind muscle connection, imagine, imagine you're, you grow up in the perfect gym. Every single machine is perfectly accommodating to you, right? So you don't ever have to develop a mind-muscle connection. Every machine just perfectly activates the target muscle based from day one, just whatever. And you probably know from, from working with people, some people are, I would call them, the term semi-derogatory, it's meant to be funny, though, they're motor morons. They just can't seem to figure out what's going on when they're when they're working out they they just don't have a good feel for it it's probably some aspect of athleticism we didn't see people who are literally doing knee extensions <coughs> excuse me they're taking their sets close to failure and they can't tell what muscles being activated they're looking right at it and they don't know that it's their quad they can't that there's just a disconnect there i know it's crazy but that 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 has happened so there's something to say for taking a hack squat initially and learning how to do the movement in a way that you want to, or learning how to manipulate your foot position or your, or choose a tempo so that you're activating things the way you want to, or turning yourself around on the machine or just recognizing that like that machine, some hack squats who, especially if they have a, a plantar flexed pad or, or sort of foot plate, those just are knee wreckers, at least for me. I feel like I'm going to, Projecting tell across the gym every time I do those, and some are great, right? So there's something that, that that's can be said, I think, for maybe I'm just being kind of an old school codger who says you got to learn how to train with whatever whatever life gives you. That's sort of the mentality from you know if you just had free weights and then you go to machines, they feel oh my god, this is amazing, it's so much easier. So having knowing what what is correct and what feels right is an important skill to have in place when you then go and want to add bands in. Because if you just started adding bands, and I've, you've probably seen this, you see someone who's got like the 25-pound plate on the hack squat and like five different bands, right? It's all bands. Are they actually able to discern whether that banding is doing anything advantageous for them in terms of activating um, according to their strength curve? Is it creating a resistance profile that is be a better match or not? They may not have the, uh, the acumen, they may not have the skill sets because they haven't trained without bands to know, oh, my God, this feels so much better when I band it this way. And I think that's you hear people say, like, see this guy, you know, he's, he's doing 45 pound hack squats with five bands on there. He needs to learn how to get the four pound, you know, four plate hack squats first and then add bands. Mm. Um, so there's I think there's something to say just for knowing that, because in order to choose the right band or choose the right band banding configuration, like I've done. I've done things like, like wrapped bands. Like I, I put bands on like um, ab crunch machines before, right? 
and hooking on like some of those the seated ag pressure seeds with the handles here at the you, you do this and you can add bands because I could use the whole stack so I wanted to add some weight and there's different ways you, you can take the band and wrap it around to the back at the bottom of the frame various different ways to do that um, and you have to figure out how much weight you need and then to some degree what banding pattern or, or what type of bands work for you so if you're adding a band that's half of your resistance is the band on average um, that might be that's going to create more of a differential from start to finish than using a much lighter band. So you may not you may be you may have a such a crazy sticking point at the bottom, like literally you're going you're going and I and I hate exercises that are like this where you can't grind through. You don't let's take let's take a step back. If you look at how muscle fatigues like during an isometric contraction, you'll see force will just slowly, slowly drop off. Right. Slowly drops off to uh, pills down to nothing. And if you had a machine that were perfectly matched, the resistance profile were perfectly matched to your strength throughout the range of motion, which may vary depending on how fatigued you are, um, then that's what you would see in terms of rep tempo, right? Your reps would be at your maintained tempo that you've chosen until you start getting to those grinders. And all of a sudden you go and you go, and then you have this one last rep where you, you know, you, you're probably going to almost always fail on a concentric. And many times, not always, but you would fail, and all of a sudden, it wouldn't be like you hit a, a, a sticking spot, all of a sudden, okay, you're done. You grind, you grind, you grind, you grind, you grind, you grind, ah, and then you start to go back, right? That's a nice resistance profile. Then you have machines where it's like, okay, you start to get a little bit of fatigue, and the amount of effort that you have to put forth at that sticking spot in the, in the, in the, in the resistance profile, in the loading curve, is so much higher that... You lose what could have been two or three other good reps were it not for the fact that that machine was so poorly engineered that it has mm. this horrible sticking sticking spot. So the ideal situation is, is you can you can ban something um, so that the resistance accommodates to your strength profile so you avoid those sticking spots. But if you're not attuned to what a sticking spot is in the first place um, – because you haven't trained long enough and haven't figured out, you know, where yours are personally. Don't bother. Yeah. Then, well, it could. I think it could still be. Well, not only that, not so much that, but it still could be. Now, can you feel the difference between with the band, without the band? It's like, ah, we know we know things from contrast, right? You don't know up without knowing down, left without wrong, mm -hmm. right? So you could, if you're a trainer, let's say, you could say, hey, this is how this feels. Look what happens when you feel. You feel how like you feel how like when you're. You're starting to get that sticking spot. Your hips are coming off the hack squat, and you're squirming around. You're doing also all this kind of shit to try to get through that sticking spot. Let's put this band here. That's how we want it to feel, right? But you don't want a you don't want a band that lets you just launch from the bottom like you got nothing there, right? Because it's so strong. So it should make it sort of effort that is homogeneous throughout the range of motion, and that's to some degree a skill, and it's going to vary. You got someone who's training with four plates, and someone else who's training with eight plates. And let's say they have the exact same resistance profile relative to their strength. The guy with eight plates would need more banding than the plates. Mm. But they might use the same band. It, those are my details. But so that's my that's my thought on on the banding. It is it is kind of um it's kind of a skill to some degree to match that to the the exercise and the person. Mm. And actually getting um, an appropriate amount of band band tension 
right? Making sure it's not right. wrapped up here and here and here and you're getting like too much. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. You can take a long band. Oh, there's there's so much to this. That's the thing that, I mean, if you, I would suggest people too that if they if they go with some bands, I like the lead FTS bands. Those are the ones I started with. There's still a, a Mountain Dog diet pack. I think you can still buy that with the bands that John used. So if you, John has a tremendous exercise inventory that's, that's out there still. Um, and you can see how he adds bands to get an idea of what you would use when and where. But if you look at a blue band or a red band from different companies, I don't know how equivalent they are. Some of them won't tell you what the tension is on those bands. And I don't even know, I should probably look into this. It might make for an interesting article, but it's probably not going to get the information very readily. Is, is there's a length tension profile to different bands based on the thickness, of course, of the band and the length of the band. So, but if you take, let's say you take, um, it would be interesting to take bands from, I know some people who might want to do this. This would be an interesting thing for some of the Instagram um, folks who uh, influencers who do some of the home gym stuff and look at what the length tension profiles are of different bands relative to their initial starting length. Because some, I think, you double the starting length and, you know, for a given band, you might get um, 50 pounds of extra force. On another band of the same length, you double it, you might get... 30 and they may have the same dimensions they may be the same color look kind of identical but one's giving you 70 pounds and one's giving you 30 pounds so the elastic is probably something like an elasticity coefficient there's mechanical properties to these to these the rubber that's in there that i think varies um of course depending on the size maybe even the shape of the rubber i don't know <laughs> and the what kind is in there right so and I've done that. I've gone to gyms, you know. I travel with some bands. I, I use the orange bands from Elite FTS. I have those Me in too. my little, yeah. I love those. They're great. They're just about perfect, right, for yeah. most things. Um, you can double them up as well, and they work great. But you go to use, try to so, use someone else's bands, and, like, it's just a shot in the dark. There's what no the standardization. It'd be like, imagine going to a gym, and, like, you just see the pl these plates, and they're all, like, irregular shapes, and they don't have any numbers on them. You're just like, okay, that one looks about like a 45. I think, no, that's shit. It's not. It's hollow. That's a 10, you know. You'd have no idea. That's kind of what you left with bands from all the different manufacturers, unless you bring your own, um, which luckily enough you can. So Too funny. Yeah. So I know we chatted a bit about, um, you know, training muscles at different lengths. We chatted a bit about neuromechanical matching which is just simply applying biomechanics and the mind to muscle connection in conjunction to each other and um, to round off this conversation i'd like to touch on just the mind to muscle connection so um, obviously there's different different forms of a mind to muscle connection so that focus can be either an internal focus of attention where we're literally thinking about contracting the target tissue Whereas it can be an external focus of attention where we're simply focused on moving the weight from point A to point B. And I think it was a, a paper by Schoenfeld where they basically investigated different types of uh, internal focus of attention or attentional focus attentional of attention. Focus. Yeah. And uh, they concluded that an external focus of attention was more beneficial for improving variables related to force production and strength 
and then an internal focus of attention was more beneficial for maximizing things such as muscle gain. So I'd love to get your insight there. And um, I think even like because we touched on tempo, I think isometrics in the short and or lengthened position can be a great teaching tool for getting people to understand what like a hard contraction feels like in the shortened position and even in the lengthened position to a degree minimizing that stretch reflex and using too much momentum in a movement but i'd love to get your insight yeah so you said a lot um the neuromechanical matching for what it's worth that that's just kind of a principle that you see based on what the central nervous system is sort of innately programmed to do um so that's that's sort of what your baseline programming is for getting things done biomechanically based on the leverages your system has the mind muscle connection is something we as bodybuilders learn we, we're trying to supersede that to some degree if you have a good one you can make a crappy exercise into a better one right so that's there's so those two are kind of um the mind muscle connection is our weapon kind of against that i have a somewhat related example that i like to use i had a long time ago when i first started doing personal training i had um a young guy came in who's a client of mine and he wanted to bring in and start training with his dad his dad had worked he worked construction his dad had worked construction his entire life lots of hard hard labor and we're just kind of teach i was teaching his dad just basic basic exercises never been to gym before just wanted to kind of stay active and but he was used to picking up heavy stuff and making it as efficient and easy to do as possible he'd done that for his entire life and he's in his 60s now i think so we're trying to do a concentration curl so i've got him you know leaning down he's got his elbow on his knee so he's doing a dumbbell, and I don't think folks can see me, and he's, he's doing one of these things. He's basically hitching back with his whole shoulder girl rather than just moving at his elbow. And I tell him, like, my standard thing, I'm like, imagine, imagine if you go to Walt Disney World, you know, and you take one of the rides in the Magic Mountain, and you see all the robots that just move, like, one joint at a time, you know? That's what I want you to be. I want you to be like a robot. I don't want to see anything on your body move except for that elbow joint and just bring the dumbbell. He couldn't do it. I literally grabbed his shoulder and said, don't let your shoulder come back and forth. Because what, what he was doing, of course, was he's bending his elbow and he's getting himself to a place where he had good strength um, and he had a, a firm grasp on that. And then he was basically kind of hitching up. So he was getting the dumbbell to come up, doing an isometric contraction in his biceps because he was, he was standing at the shoulder or flexing at the shoulder and pulling it. It was becoming a whole body movement basically so he could do an isometric contraction where he's stronger than during doing a concentric concentration curl so our bodies are sort of programmed to do that and we want to we want to work past that whenever possible um so now i think i've forgotten this, the second part of your question um, i was just about the uh internal ah, external focus of attention that and the stretching so yes brad does have a nice study out there and the the where the where the mind goes the body will follow right so where you put your focus is is um is where it matters and i think there's a delicate balance when it comes to progressive overload to make sure you're not cheating yourself and just trying to move the numbers up in the logbook um when and you're losing sight of the the internal attentional focus um and a lot of times i've had clients do this i've done this myself you just at some point you can figure out like okay i'm just getting sore everywhere i think i'm getting a little bit sloppy just go back to ground zero drop your weights to like two-thirds of what they used to be 
and start over, slowing all your all your sets down, focusing on what you're trying to hit. And you can literally just sort of restart like brand new chapter in your logbook and go from there. Um, but one thing you did mention, which is um, which has kind of occurred to me when I was looking into this a little more deeply in some of this literature than I had before, um, is doing isometrics and doing contractions in a lengthened position. And a couple things popped into my head. Um, one, for instance, DC training. I'm wearing a DC training shirt today, just so so happened to be ha- put one on. DC training for calves. I don't know if you're familiar with how Dante, yep. That's what he found worked the best for calves. That's a, that's a, that's a contracted, an isometric contraction and stretch position. Works really, really well for calves. That's absolutely brutal. For people who don't know what Dante would suggest sort of as a basis for DC training um, for calves would be to do your sets with, um, and I used to be sort of the official DC trainer, so, so I had, had people do them just to keep it um, standardized, was you do tw- basically 20-second repetitions. So you're on whatever calf raise you happen to be on. Um, contract up, do three, four, five-second negative, and then hold that stretch position with the weight until you get to the 20-second point. So you do three reps every minute. So your reps will start on zero, 20, 40 and then zero (laughs) and you're shooting for like eight to 12 reps something like that per set so these would be like three minute sets and those last two or three reps absolutely brutal pure pain it's it was it's very very close to doing blood flow restriction training because basically that's what it is um that works tremendously well for people who can't get their calves to grow otherwise um and probably the amount of people that use excess load for calves, they would have to reduce that by at least 50%. Oh, yeah. You can't use very much at all. <clears throat> no way. There's there's evidence for this. Um, I pulled up a paper by um, Grimera et al. And mm-hmm. um, they basically demonstrated that the soleus has a greater potential for experiencing stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And, um, yeah. I mean, even in my training, my calves are ridiculous. Don't mean to toot my own horn, but uh. <laughs> it's because I emphasize that stretch position at the bottom, right? Uh. So does that mean every tissue would be able to experience stretch-mediated hypertrophy? So the way I think about this, and I, I, don't, I don't think I directly touched on this earlier on, <clears throat> so we, we tend to see stretch me hypertrophy more so in the lower body um and otherwise we're basically talking about upper body as biceps and triceps there's the evidence is really kind of mixed there um i think some of it has to do with just how well people can activate things and plus the biceps is is not a pinnated muscle so as i mentioned before you're you're not you're likely to have those sorts of things but um especially with most people today most we're not running and playing we're not moving around much um and with with typical locomotion um just walking and sitting doing things we don't experience forces we don't have a whole lot of elongation in the muscles of our lower body on it we don't you don't see people like um even on the toilets today you don't have to squat all the way down (laughs) squatting all the way down if you go to the more quote-unquote primitive cultures and i use that term very loosely um well, they can all squat down. People can squat down. They spend half the day squatting down. Well, we don't do that. 
right? That doesn't happen in modern civilization. Whereas in your upper body, like you comb your hair, you reach back and scratch your back, like I'm stretching my triceps out here, reach back and grab stuff. We're doing day-to-day -day actions. Your hands, your, your arms are fully extended. So your biceps, most of the time, is basically in a fully stretched position. Makes sense you wouldn't get much stretch medium hypertrophy. And you're experiencing stretching a good bit here. Um, there's one study that says that you get stretch medium hypertrophy in the triceps. Another suggests not. Um, you would expect the long head might get stretched and then, and then activate. Another study did not show that. I think some of that has to do with learning how to train that, lo that long head when you're in that stretched position. If you're someone who hasn't done overhead tricep extensions, um, then you may not know how to activate the long head and get growth there. But if you've got, got a good mind-muscle connection, you do. On the other hand, if we look at the lower body um, and look at how, for instance, you train calves, right? Um, that stretch that you have is unlike anything you're ever going to experience during your day-to-day -day living. That's an extraordinarily extraordinary stretch. Like you would, you would never walk up steps that way, right? Um, with your like, with all that dorsiflexion, you're like asking to break an ankle. So nothing about normal day-to-day -day locomotion or movement, or even even squatting, puts us in that position. Squatting down maybe a little bit, but not with the kind of loads that you're using. So you're getting much more stretch relative to the loading history that most of us typically experience as, as modern Westerners in a modern world when we do stretch-oriented resistance exercise. So that's why I think you get this more so in the lower body, in those muscles that don't typically experience that kind of stretch. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have a sort of a, a thought on this that I've had. It's been in the back of my head for a long time, but it kind of applies to me, is um, relative to the pecs. So I think a lot of, there are probably many people who spend a lot of their day with their arms forward like this, maybe they got their cell phone in their hands or they've got slumped shoulders because they're sitting at their desk and they've just got poor posture. And of course, over the course of time, their pecs have adjusted their resting length to that posture. Um, of course, you always want to be safe. You don't want to tear a pec. But I, I've always sort of thought that one adjusting posture could potentially be helpful for those individuals in terms of pec mass. Mm. Um, you know, like if you ever had an arm cast, if you had your elbow casted at 90 degrees, um, the biceps will, will, uh, atrophy considerably, but the triceps, not so much. Um, I've mentioned this before in the context of people like with resistance or I'm sorry, with spinal cord injury. Um, and you see if we, if they, if you ignore the people who, who, uh, don't take their anti-spasticity meds, um, some, some people uh, who've got SCI, spinal cord injuries, don't take those because they, they don't mind having the cramps. The cramps maintain muscle mass because it maintains some, or the spasms maintain muscle mass. But what you see is many of them sit with a plant in a plantar flex position with their toes pointed all day long. And they have severely atrophied calf muscles, which are shortened, but their um, tibialis anterior is... Clo much closer to the same size of able-bodied controls. So, because it's on a stretch, right? So when you, when you, they're sitting like this, so people can see this is the foot and this is their, their tibia, this is, this is their ankle joint. So they're sitting like that. So when you normalize the, the, um, 
the joint angle to 90 degrees or whatever they use, you're taking a muscle that's set up to be in this lengthening position, and now you're shortening it. So just like when you shorten your bicep and it gets bigger and rounder, same thing happens, relatively speaking, to the anterior tib, and it's the same size because it's set up to be at a longer position. So I've always sort of wondered about people who sit with slumped shoulders. If they wouldn't have bigger pecs, if they learned how to sit with better, um, better posture, or perhaps as a secondary measure, start training the pecs, or at least making sure when they do train the pecs um, that they warm up appropriately and work on pec flexibility, but make sure that they do train in a stretch position where they can safely do so. Mm -hmm. I would imagine, and you see people sometimes doing that, all their pec exercises are short range of motion. And that can be okay if someone can activate the pecs really well. Take an, I'll, I mean, I'll, counter, I'll counter myself here, like someone like Chris Cormier, um, I think an old school bodybuilder, said he used to do tremendous chest, tremendously strong. He was one of those guys, people thought, shouldn't I do my incline presses or my, my, my barbell presses and you know, stop like eight inches shy of the chest? Well, that's how he would do them. He wasn't getting that stretch, but he was able to activate his chest really, really well. He, 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 I think he was a gifted athlete. He was obviously gifted for sure. So there's something to say for that. But many people, of course, the bench press's lockout is largely determined by tricep strength. So if you're just training in that shortened range of motion, you're going to be training your tri potentially just training your triceps more than your chest if you if you neglect the, the length and range of motion. So people who sit like that and have a weak chest, sit up straight. This is my thought, you know. I haven't seen this pan out because I can't get anyone to do it. Um, but also then that would be a muscle that is typically shortened during the day in the upper body that might do well being trained in a stretch position. Because just like those other examples I gave, that would be something out of the ordinary for it. It's not out of the ordinary to be stretched the arm muscles, the biceps and triceps, but for the lower body muscles, I think it is. I think that is, is at least sort of a teleological argument as to why we see stretch and medial hypertrophy more so in the lower body. Mm. Great points. Chris Cormier is a nice guy too. Okay, yeah, I don't know him. Yeah, he's but, super nice, very oh, humble. It's cool. um, a great point. Um, so mainly in the lower body, would you say that uh, muscles such as fan-shaped like muscles, such as the pecs and or the lats, are able to experience it to a greater degree than something like the biceps or triceps, given that, you know, they essentially are using the rib cage for that stretch and or leverage? I haven't seen it in the lats, but I think that's a function of they just don't have good mechanical advantage, that neuromuscular matching doesn't doesn't work well for them. It's hard to activate them in a stretch position unless you know what you're doing, right? The one study that I'm thinking of, the activation of the lats is much better the, the further you, you get to uh, the, the fully shortened position, for instance, on a pull-up or a chin-up, right? But if you get it to activate, there's um, – um, now I'm going to go, go really old school. I'm going to blank on his name now. Um, Larry Scott, first Mr. Olympia, right? He has – these are kind of like camelback rows. People can look those up. You can do these on a, um, uh, a seated cable row machine where you literally, um, and you gotta, you got to have good hamstring flexibility in order to do this, but you let your whole body come forward. So you're literally leaning forward. And your face is almost between your knees, right? You can use a close grip handle. You can use a, 
a, a moderate width. And basically, you're, you're doing kind of a, um, it's like, it looks biomechanically just from sort of the, um, the waist up, like you're doing kind of a pull down. But what that camelback structure or camelback term refers to is that your whole, your whole, whole spine is flexed, right? So you normally, if you had a load on your shoulders, you don't want to have a, you know, your thrashing might be flexed, but you don't have a flexed spine. You're going to, good way to blow out a lumbar disc. But in this <laughs> case, this case, you've got traction on your spine, so it's okay. So if you can get in a, in a seated row position where you totally lean forward like that and you're, and you're stretched out, um, you can't use much weight on these at all, and you've got a good mind-muscle connection, you can really fill your lats in that stretch position. So that's a camelback row. I think Ron Harris has a video of himself doing that. You can look up. It's something that the uh, first time I heard it was from Dante. He mentioned, I think he even called it that. I've heard it, heard it called numerous different things. Um, and then Larry Scott, you can find a video on YouTube for this too. He used to do, I'm trying to think how he did this. He used to do like a one-armed cable row uh, reaching overhead like this. And he would stand, he'd like get like a high cable and he'd stand, maybe he'd sit and he literally would let the, the cable come from here and he would pull it this way across his body. Um, it was a very unique biomechanical position and you can't use hardly any weight on that at all. Um, but the way, the way it was set up, because literally I mean, you'd have to be doing something like this with cables and they'd be hitting you in the face probably if you use a cross cable machine sitting up. Um, but the, the, the trick there in both of those cases is that with the camelback, you've got spinal flexion. Um, and that allows you to get some stretch on the lats. Seems like it allows you to activate them as well more easily. Um, not sure the mechanism there. And the same thing with this Larry Scott version. Um, that's a really old video, but it was out there at least last time I looked. So I think if you can, you need to get both activations so you have tension produced um, in that stretch position. And that would work. But most people don't activate the lats in the stretch position when doing, for instance, pull-down machines. They can't get themselves to do that. So the trick that, um, that I, I like to pass on is or you, one thing you can do kind of mentally to, to get that mind-muscle connection in place is think about the target muscle and initiate the movement with that target muscle. So generally with back stuff, I think your hands are hooks. Elbows are loose hinges. If you're doing like a pull down or even like you're just driving your elbows back, you're trying to put your elbows in your pockets, that sort of thing. So those, those mental tips in place. But also, when you start the movement, you're not starting with your arms. You got a, your hands a hook and, and you're starting with your lat. Literally, you're thinking, so it's going to be a shoulder girdle movement in part, right? But you're trying to drive your elbow back. So the lat's connecting to your humerus. So you want to, you're basically wanting to do this. You're going to get some shoulder girl movement no matter what, but you're initiating the movement here, right? As opposed to here. And that's it's hard to see. You guys are just looking at my upper body through the screen. You can't really see much of what I'm doing. But if you think of the movement needs to start and continue and end only with that muscle, and it's something you can do <clears throat> as well when doing something like that, the camelback rows or, or whatever, is start in the contracted position. There you can feel your lat, right? Then you know it's there. And then continue, and there's nothing wrong with doing partial reps. Continue until you get until you feel like you're losing connection with the muscle. You won't necessarily be fully stretched, right? But and do your reps that way. That way you're training where you're activating the muscle 
with as much stretch as you possibly can. Can and chances are, if you're doing that for the first time, you're activating in a more stretch position or in a different way than you ever have before. And in my in Dante's training program and DC training, extreme stretching, he used to have people do a weighted stretch. And the idea idea was that that I always told people is you're active, you're trying to activate your lats when you're doing that, not just stretching there. They're going to be, they're going to be, they're under stretch. If you, if you do that stretch right after you train lats, you're going to feel it. And I also have in, in fortitude training as an alternative to that, what I call an occlusion stretch. And the reason I added it was basically related to what we're talking about right now is that some stretches with load or some stretch with some machines, it's just, they just don't work. You just, you just feel like you're stretching the joints. You feel like you're just going to hurt yourself trying to do the stretch and stretching is very intuitive and and it but it can be used stretch under the load can be used to add a stimulus so this occlusion stretch would be find something you can stretch on so let's say it's a lat stretch you might you might grab the post uh, squat rack that's that's nailed to the ground and do a single arm stretch and you stretch and the position and the angle and it could be highly variable depending on what you train that day or what you were trying to hit where you feel like you're lacking muscular wise contract the shit out of the muscle and and put it under stretch at the same time. So it doesn't have to be maximal stretch in terms of range of motion. You need to have the contraction in a stretched position. And that way you're training, training your mind-muscle connection to be able to activate the muscle in that stretch position. And hopefully that would then, seems like in my experience and that of clients I've worked with, it seems like that then carries over. You get used to contracting in that stretch position because you're spending 60 seconds every workout doing that after you train those muscle groups. Mm-hmm. You can do that for all muscle groups. You just got to find the right thing to stretch on. You could usually in a mobile object of some sort, rack, a bar, a pad, whatever, and you stretch the muscle and you contract it under stretch. And it's a voluntary. The nice thing about that is it's auto-regulated. Um, you can only make it as hard as you're willing to make it. So some days be like, okay, I fucked myself today. I'm, I don't got much left, right? Pardon my French. Right? I'm going to do an occlusion stretch, but it's going to be 60 seconds, and I'm going to try to hit the spots that I haven't hit, for instance, the way I'd have people do this. Ah, uh, there's something I missed there. I'm going to try to target that. And it allows you to sort of feel out the territory of your own of your own muscle and figure out what you can and can't hit and get some practice with that mind-muscle connection by stretching under load, voluntary isometric contraction in that stretch position. So can be done, but it's something you cultivate, I think, over years. So, yeah, the lats, the pecs, you got to learn how to do it, right? Right. Um, All incredible points. And um, to sort of round off this conversation, as far as a practical application goes for the things we talked about, is there anything you would uh, love to leave the audience with? Any upcoming tours or projects you have going on? Oh, that tours I have. I just got the camper. Um, it's named after my dog Blitzy. That's the Blitzy mobile. I got the RV, but that's the plan is to get on the road and continue where I left off before the pandemic. So um, once I know what's up there, um, I will let people know. But um, awesome. Come to come to Denver. We'd love to have you. <laughs> I love to come back to Armbrust, man. I love it. Love to. Um, so I'm trying to think if there's anything I missed in terms of practical. I, I wrote some things down here. Um, partials. I Actually, this is kind of oh, an wow, important we didn't thing. Touch on yeah, partials. we touched on partials. 
Um, so one thing I I included, and I, I, I feel like I well, I kind of I'm pumping my Fortitude training system. But one thing I included in there is a set type, and I'm used the pun intentionally of pump sets. So those are geared towards the idea of metabolic stress. Not that metabolic stress per se is the stimulus for muscle growth, um, but it's it's geared at trying to create that because that's a surrogate for having turned on those motor units, those muscle fibers, and stimulated them and stressed them in some way, shape, or form. And what happen, What I suggest people do is take whatever strategy they want to do for a pump set, and it could be a multitude of things, um, 21s, reverse 21s, one and a half reps, um, a set to failure, or basically the full range of motion, and then do partials in the range of motion where you feel the muscle best, so take advantage of the fact that for a given exercise and for based on your, your personal neuromechanical matching, there's going to be a certain part of range of motion where you're really hitting what you're trying to hit, right? At that, could be in the contracted position. It could be in the lengthened position. Um, but you can do those partials um, where you've hit the muscle best. And I'm, of course, I'm relying on the fact that you can sense when this is happening. But I like to think there's something there. Recently, I just grabbed before. But those those partials can be done. So it's just one and a half reps. We didn't mention that. You can do one and a half reps in the stretch position and add those half reps. So make your entire set um, leverage that stretch position and make your entire set weighted, pardon the pun, towards training in the stretch position. Um, and the thing that's nice there is is that then you're you're getting better at doing those moving through that part of the range of motion where you may be weak. So you're developing a better mind-muscle connection and with the idea that that would then carry over to doing regular repetitions in that exercise or other exercises where you know how to activate the muscle that you're trying to hit in that, in that lengthened position. So that was one thing. And then partials um, in the shortened position. Yeah, and they can be done in the short. If, if that's where it feels best, that makes sense. There'll be, there'll be some exercises where that's where you can hit the muscle the best. You know, or alternatively, it may be that um, you've got a sticking point in the lengthened range of motion. So you want to intensify a set, right? You've done your full range of motion reps, right? Maybe you have a training partner you can't get anymore, but you can eke out. And this is how I, the pump sets are completely up to the person. They're auto-regulated. The loading sets are very by the book. Count the reps and sets and progressive overload. Muscle rounds are sort of in between. The pump sets are are train that mind-muscle connection, work on creating a stimulus. You may have a, an exercise where, let's say it's some sort of a chest fly, where <laughs> you get to a set where you basically know you've got zero reps in reserve. If you go back down to the stretch position, you're not coming back up, right? So you finish that rep, you know that's the last one you're going to get, but you can eke out partials in that shortened range of motion. Well, then you're, then you're training that. That may be your weak spot. So you're, you're going to have some neurological carryover to get to potentially to getting stronger in that part of the range of motion, which is just going to help you activate more muscle there. Plus, you're able to extend your set, right? So you're able to get more, although they're, par, although they're, um, they're partial reps, you can consider them effective reps because they're high effort. They're at the very end of the set. So shortened range of motion reps can be okay too. That can be mm. totally fine because you can get better activation sometimes in those. Or you can extend a set because you're using those. Always try to find the middle ground in this 
absolute yeah. black and white world. Dow- Dallas bodybuilding, right? Dallas bodybuilding. <laughs> the middle way. Love it. I want to thank you for your time, Dr. Scott, and um, taking like a couple days to even dive into these topics just to make sure that uh, you know, you're coming on here and doing your due diligence. And it's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, whether you're in Denver next time or I'm in Florida next time, we definitely have to link up. Cool. Good plan, brother. For sure. Thank you so much. Appreciate your right, time. Man. You're Talk welcome. You. Bye-bye. Yep. Adios.